1: Hello and welcome to Extra Time, a web-only program from RNZ Sport. I'm Joe Porter. This week we analyze the Trans-Tasman Netball Championship split and discuss the ramifications for New Zealand netball. New Zealand heavyweight Joseph Parker prepares for the biggest fight of his boxing career. He's one win away from a shot at a world title. We catch up with the New Zealand Sevens team as the players get their last chance to impress before the Rio Olympics. Muirfield in Scotland has been stripped of any future chance of hosting the Open Golf Championship after maintaining its ban on women members. The International Olympic Committee finds dozens of failed tests after re-analyzing Beijing 2008 samples, and High Performance Sport New Zealand are unhappy at their recent government funding allocation. They believe it's not enough to keep pace with the rest of the world. After nine years, the Trans-Tasman Netball competition has been scrapped. From next year, New Zealand and Australia each run its own domestic competition, with Australia wanting to pull out of the current setup in large part due to the lack of competitiveness of New Zealand sides. A second Auckland-based franchise will be established for the new six-team New Zealand domestic competition, with Australia opting for an eight-team competition, with the establishment of three new franchises there. Sports editor Stephen Hewson reports.
2: Now Uber again. Into the safe
1: hands a
3: fake she has had a on fire, the magic, magic Waikato Bay of plenty Magic grand final win in 2012 was the only time a New Zealand teams managed to win the trans-tasman competition with Australian sides dominating all of the other seven tournaments. It was the lopsided nature of the competition that led Australia to push for change, with Nepal New Zealand Chief Executive Hilary Poole saying keeping the current format was never a possibility. Poole says the only way a combined competition could have continued as far as Australia was concerned was if the number of New Zealand teams was cut.
4: For us it was never on the table and it was actually three then four and uh, we felt in the long term that would be a retrograde step. What we need to do is invest in our game here and develop our style of play and really build on those intense contests and rivalry that we've seen this year.
3: The current Southern Steel coach, Nolan Taurua, who coached the Magic to the 2012 title, believes the new format will increase player depth here. She understands why those such as former silver fern Irene van Dyke feel the removal of the regular trans-Tasman matches will hinder development but she doesn't agree.
5: I don't feel that we've we've shifted or moved um, in the whole 10 years of of learning from what it is like playing against Australia. And if anything, we've become victims or had that victim mentality when we do play against them. So, you know, we can keep going on the same lines um, as we are, but I don't think it's going to benefit us.
3: The former Silver Fern and current Central Pulse coach, Tanya Derns is ambivalent towards the change, describing it as back to the future as it resembles the National Bank Cup, which was the precursor to the current competition. She concedes it could lead to more New Zealand players looking to follow Silver Fern Laura Langman's lead and chase a dispensation from Netball New Zealand to sign with Australian clubs.
5: For girls that have um, made netball their profession, then obviously you're going to want to go where there's the best opportunities for you to to make a living. So that could happen, and and it all depends on what the national body want to do around their national team and their Silver Ferns, to how that works.
3: Would you expect there to be any prerequisite, I suppose, for players to be playing their netball in New Zealand if they want to be part of the Silver Ferns?
5: There could be but the fact that they've allowed Laura Langman to play for the Swifts this year indicates that they don't see that as a, as a problem.
3: Another silver fern, Jolene Henry's disappointed the trans-Tasman element has been abandoned, but she doesn't believe it will have a detrimental impact on the silver fern's ability to be competitive against Australia at international level.
5: I don't think it ever caused us a problem prior to the trans-Tasman competition, and I don't think it will in the future. But I, you know, it doesn't really matter what comes down to how well is, As as players and as international players that you prepare and it it is sad but um, you always have the New Zealand versus Aussie clashes and I think that that can only but heighten those and, and make you know the anticipation for those even more.
3: Netball New Zealand hopes to retain some international element to the domestic competition and is devising a tournament whereby the top team or teams may play other top international club sides. For Checkpoint Stephen Hewson.
1: We hear more now from former Silver Fern Belinda Colling, who told Morning Report the ANZ competition has been failing New Zealand players.
5: Yeah, well, look, I think something had to happen. This competition that's been running for about nine years hasn't uh, really had the results for New Zealand that we would have liked. We only sort of win you know, around 25% of matches over that nine-year period, only about 11% of matches that we play in Australia we've been successful in. We haven't, you know, we haven't won the last few world championships during this time, so I think from New Zealand's point of view, we've had to look at, uh, you know, is this competition benefiting us? And I think from Australia's perspective, um, you know, there's always been that New Zealand propping up Australia financially with us, with our... um, Broadcast deal with Sky TV, so yeah, I think things uh, yeah were always looking like something needed something drastic needed to be done, and um, yep, the split is on on the table, and mm. uh, yeah, it is what it is. Really,
1: Do- doesn't it feel like a bit of a backward step, though, Belinda? If we weren't competitive enough to to foot it with the Aussies, and now we've got to have our own competition, um, is that going to lead to a, a lower standard of play for us?
5: Yeah, I don't think so. I think you know, if you look back to the time when we were split, we were very competitive with Australia and um, you know, and that was the last time we actually won a world championship and had a quite a period of domination over them. So, I wouldn't be afraid of that and um I think there's so much more on the international calendar now uh that you still will get exposed. Um they've talked about this championship league that will follow each country's domestic league, so there will be um, opportunity there to still um, measure up against each other. Um, I think we do a pretty good job in New Zealand um, with our development coming through. We're really successful at secondary and and under twenty one level. Um, yeah, it, it hasn't been working, so they've had to look at something mm. new. And I think going back to what you know our own development, which. You know they've put a lot of emphasis on the um, at the moment is, is probably the right way to go.
1: So do you think it'll allow New Zealand to develop its own style of play more? I be, I guess that could be one of the advantages.
5: We've always had our own style, and New Zealand have kind of got this little bit of a big brother thing going on with, or big sister thing going on with New Australia, we we always try to measure ourselves, or um, we always try to. Um, you know, replicate them a little bit or, um, you know, and I think we've lost our way a little bit in trying to match up to, you know, how the Australians do it and we have a really unique and awesome style of netball that takes in all the cultural difference that we have in New Zealand and it it is a great product and I think, you know, trying to be too like Aussie has cost us a little bit. I think we have taken... Um, so good some good learnings out of it but I think yeah getting back to what our style um, is will be um, will be really beneficial and and you're yeah, really focusing on developing that and being not so worried about, you know, beating Australia at their own game.
1: Belinda Collins speaking to Morning Reports, Guy on Espina. The New Zealand heavyweight boxer Joseph Parker is just one fight away from a crack at a world title. But first he must beat the French Cameroon boxer Carlos Tacken tomorrow night. The 35-year-old Tacken boasts an impressive record of 33 wins, two losses and a draw. And as Matt Chatterton reports, both fighters are determined to earn their shot at a world title.
6: Joseph Parker's professional career to date has been a successful one. The 24-year-old is undefeated in his 18 fights, 16 of them by way of knockout. However, Takim poses a new threat to Parker. The 35-year-old has only ever been knocked out once in his career, and that was by a boxer who just earlier this week tested positive for meldonium, the banned substance tennis star Maria Sharapova admitted taking earlier this year. Parker's coach, Kevin Barry, paid a lot of respect to Takim, calling him a considerable step up from Parker's previous opponents.
2: I consider Carlos the bogeyman of heavyweight boxing. He's the guy that... Other elite heavyweights just simply don't ask to fight. His aggressive fighting, his stamina, the way he comes forward, I think all those things will test Joe like he's never tested before. But I also believe it'll bring the very best of Joseph Parker out.
6: The winner of tomorrow's million-dollar fight gets a mandatory challenge for the International Boxing Federation's heavyweight title, which is currently held by Britain boxer Anthony Joshua. Parker has said from the outset of his career he wants to be world champion, and he's desperate for a showdown with Joshua, the 2012 Olympic heavyweight champion. But the 24-year-old knows getting past Takam first is a lot easier said than done. If you have a, a guy
0: like Carlos Takam who's prepared and who's here to you know, give me a good fight, who's confident in himself and who's who's uh, trained to so, help, then um, you're definitely going to take some punches, but, but the goal is not to get hit. I'm just excited to be challenging someone like Carlos Who's going to be a, a good name on my
5: um, on my record if I, if I do better.
6: As for the man he's facing, Carlos Takim is a man of few words. He prefers to let his fists do the talking. Takim has been sparring with the last person to beat Joseph Parker in his amateur career, Junior Far, proving he's not taking the hometown favourite lightly but he's still confident he'll come out on top come Saturday, firing off some pre-fight warning shots, courtesy of a
5: translator.
0: So before this fight, I didn't know too much about Joseph Parker, but having done my research, I do think that he is a great young boxer. Uh, He's had a great career. However, he is in my path, um, and I'm here to win. So I think that with time, he's going to be one of the best, but right now, I'm here to win.
6: The two boxers will do the official weigh in later today before tomorrow night's fight in Manukau. For Morning Report, Matt Chetterton.
1: The New Zealand Sevens team compete in the final World Series leg in London this weekend where the players will get their last chance to impress coach Sir Gordon Titchens in a tournament setting before he picks his squad for the Rio Olympic Games. DJ Forbes and Liam Messam have headed home because of injury, while captain Tim Mickelson has returned after missing the Paris round with an ankle complaint. Titchens told reporters in London this weekend's tournament could make or break some of his players' chances of going to Rio.
2: Yeah, the squad's not actually picked till, till July, um, early July, and um, and obviously um, I'm looking to pick 14 players. 14 players will go to Rio, and obviously I'll be naming the 12 as well. So um, it's going to be obviously tough. We've got 16 here now, ready all... Uh, raring to, to make this side and uh, it's going to be really competitive and uh, that's why these tournaments here such as Twickenham this weekend are really important for some of these players.
5: Will you only pick from players who've played in the series or will you look at maybe others that you may
2: bring into the camp? No, at the moment only picking from players that are within that 16 man squad. I mean that's what that's what it is now and uh, I mean it's a, it's a tough game, sevens rugby. You know, you got to be really conditioned. You just can't go and pull out any player to, to jump into a sevens team and that's the challenges that we have. But um, I've got 16 really keen players here wanting to make that side to go to Rio. Does any idea who you might
7: be grouped
2: with in Rio? Um, no, I suppose um, we're sitting and we're looking where we're likely to sit in the, in the World Series. Um, I think Great Britain could be there or thereabouts, probably looking at it at the moment, but um, it's, it's very, very difficult. And they'll be also uh, a difficult team to beat anyway. I think every team that goes to the Olympics, it's going to be a real challenge. I mean, we've seen the Game of Sevens change so much over the years, and particularly this year with so much interest in the teams making it and once they've finally qualified and made, this, made the Olympics they'll play, be playing out of their skins and, uh, and it's going to be no different for our side or any other team.
6: It looks like uh, Fiji's going to win the series. Coach, uh, how would you describe your
2: season? Well, I think we've had a, you know, a fairly good season to be fair. We've been probably ravaged with injuries. It's probably the a year that I've never seen before or been involved. The injuries have just been horrendous, going way back to South Africa and Dubai. If I told you the number of players that I've got out now that would be part of this team, would be, you know, be, it's mind-boggling, really. But, um, but be still sitting, you know, third and could hit second if we're, if we're really lucky. You know, it's um, it's not a bad season really in such a competitive environment, and that's what it is now. It's so so, so competitive, and you know, we've won three tournaments. Fiji's won three. And everyone else has won one so that's between Kenya and South Africa, you know, and um, and, and of course just last weekend, which we saw, you know, a different one there as well. So, so it's um, yeah, a pretty good year, pretty overall, pretty happy. But um, you know, you'd love to win it, but um, I think Fiji deserve it. I think they've been consistently the best team in the World Series this year. Has it
3: been your hardest season of all,
2: of the It's been tough in terms of the injuries and. You know we've got a lot of rugby players in New Zealand, but not a tremendous amount of sevens players. So it's, it's having lots and lots of depth. Fiji, fortunately, that's their, their national game, and they've got them everywhere. I mean, uh, they just uh, and a great side, and they've got a um, obviously they put themselves in a position to win it this weekend, which I th- I'm pretty sure they will. But um, for us, it's about coming out of this tournament with a lot of confidence and uh, heading into Rio. Because at the end of the day, I think it's not um, people are not going to really remember who won the World Series. I think it's about who's going to win that first Olympic sevens gold medal.
1: Sir Gordon Titchens, and you're listening to Extra Time, a web-only show from RNZ Sport. A bid to allow women to join the golf club at Scotland's legendary Muirfield course has failed, meaning the course will be removed from the list of venues eligible to host the sport's oldest major championship, the Open. After a two-year consultation process, club members have voted to maintain the all-male membership policy, which has been in place since 1744. Sports editor Stephen Hewson reports. one of the finest final rounds in Open Championship history, on the
0: way... Yes, the double fist bump for lefty. One hand in the Clarence Judd, the other on his fifth major championship.
3: Muirfield last hosted the Open in 2013 when American Phil Mickelson won. But it'll be a while before the championship returns with the sports guardians, the Royal and Ancient Golf Club of St Andrews removing Muirfield's hosting rights. The all-male membership policy has been in place since the club was founded in 1744. The club captain, Henry Fairweather, explains how the vote went.
7: A majority of members voted for women as members of the club, but the two-thirds majority that we require for a change in the rules was not met. Women will continue to be welcome at Muirfield on the course and in the clubhouse as guests and as visitors, and indeed we have some ladies
3: playing here today. Henry Fairweather says the club committee had urged members to vote to overturn the policy.
7: I am disappointed because we, the the committee and I recommended that members should vote in favour of the admission of women, but we respect the, the views of the members and I'm delighted that we've had such a high
3: turnout in the vote. The veteran BBC golf commentator Peter Eller says the issue is an emotive one, but maintains women can still play at the club. The women who are their wives as husbands, they get all the facilities. If somebody wants to join, uh, well, you better get married to somebody who's a member. I I believe that clubs were formed years ago by people of like spirit, doctors, lawyers, accountants, bakers, butchers, whatever they like, and they joined in like spirit to talk amongst them, to do whatever. But opposition to the policy has been swift. Scotland's First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, says she wants the decision overturned.
4: The decision is wrong and it's indefensible. Muirfield is a private club. They are in charge of their own rules and regulations, I accept that. But this is 2016. Scotland has women leaders in every walk of life. So I think this decision is wrong and I, I hope there is a way of looking at it again and overturning it.
3: The men's world number three Rory McIlroy, has called on Muirfield to see sense. We're in a day and age where it's not right to host
4: the world's biggest golf tournament at a place that doesn't allow women to, to be members. So, um, you know, hopefully, you know, Muirfield can maybe see some sense.
3: The former New Zealand professional Frank Nobolo, who now works as a television commentator, has applauded the decision to strip Muirfield of its open status.
6: We know how great a golf course Muirfield is, but if they're not going to open it up to everybody, then, then I think that's imperative for golf. We want golf to be available to as many people, irrespective of their, uh, their sex as possible. So I think this was a very, very important day, very important move. I, I feel sorry for Muirfield that they don't want to uh, do what everybody else is doing, but time to look ahead, not behind.
3: Royal Troon Golf Club, which is also in Scotland and will host this year's tournament in July, is now the only open venue not to permit women as members although it's currently deciding whether to change its all-male membership policy. For Extra Time, Stephen Hewson.
1: This week, the International Olympic Committee announced 31 athletes from 12 nations and six sports could be banned from this year's Rio Olympics after 454 doping samples were retested from the 2008 Beijing Olympics. The IOC also said it would start retesting Sochi 2014 Winter Games samples after allegations of tarnished samples surfaced last week. In an effort to crack down on cheats during the Olympics, the IOC said those found to have tested positive for banned substances would not be competing in Rio. Barry Guy spoke to Graham Steele from Drug Free Sport New Zealand about the announcement and what it means to be retesting samples that are eight years old.
4: That's a, a, a method that's been introduced really throughout this century and, and even going back to uh, Athens um samples were being stored so we in our own program uh, tank is the reference we make um, samples and store them so that um, as new technology emerges in, in the analysis uh, where we think that that may be applicable to a particular sample we'll use that.
7: Uh, just looking at the whole physical side of things I mean this must be it must be quite vast the fact that samples are being kept so long and they can be retested or are, are we talking microscopic type things?
4: Uh, no, they, they, you're right. That there's a, a large bulk of samples, so they all are in two uh, bottles each containing about a hundred mils, so um, or up to a hundred mils. So yes, they take up a lot of room and a lot of freezer space because, of course, they've got to be frozen, uh, and, and that's one of the challenges. And that's why we don't tank every sample, um, but we, uh, in, in most anti-doping organisations now um, make a choice as to which ones they think would be the the best to keep. I
7: I suppose with uh, new methods now, you you know, uh, the drugs agencies can test for things that perhaps they couldn't previously?
4: Well, that's right. And, and, uh, of course, if something is new on the list, then it it wouldn't have applied at the time a historic sample was was collected. But the analytical techniques that are being used um, are... Uh, increasing in their sensitivity all the time, uh, and so we can now see smaller amounts of uh, prohibited substances than we previously could have, and, and that may and they may not have been seen when the sample was initially analysed.
7: Uh, we are talking, I think, at the moment about Beijing. So that is a while ago, but uh, the IOC obviously feels that you know there are sufficient athletes still going that they don't want to be at Rio.
4: Well there's a maximum of 10 years on this so you you can't go back further than 10 years um, and and this will be 8 so sometimes the result management process takes a while but I'm I'm sure that they would have been keen to tidy up any issues that that may have related to Rio prior to those games rather than allowing athletes to compete there and then finding out that not only um, in uh, Beijing were they positive but they may have been so in Rio as well. And that, of course, corrupts the whole um, competitive process.
7: How big is the fact that uh, they are doing that in the whole gamut of where you're at with trying to fight the war on drug abuse?
4: Oh, look, it's a pretty important tool that we have because athletes who may think, well, uh, the science can't catch me. I know that I'm better than the current science need to be confident that they'll be better than the science in 10 years time. Uh, and uh, in at least 31 cases that we know of, have just announced overnight, that hasn't been the case. And, of course, there have been numerous other athletes in the past that have, have been found uh, out in this way, and, and of course, the um, Belarusian athlete who won the, uh, who apparently won the gold medal in, in the women's shot put in London was found out um, with retesting. So uh, it, it's been around for a while, and, and it's a powerful tool for us and an important one.
7: Yeah, retrospectively, you know, medals can be taken away from someone
4: Well that's right and and I guess the the most classic one is is the woman who heads the Athletes Commission who finished um, third at an Olympic Games and ultimately was first because progressively the silver and gold medalists were um, uh, eliminated because of of, uh, testing that occurred after the Games, not at the Games
7: Is there any flow on for yourself at Drug Free Sport New Zealand in what um, you're trying to achieve in New Zealand as well?
4: Well, it again emphasises the importance of this tanking process and and making sure that that we've got our head around um, that and and have a policy that ensures that the right samples are being kept. Um, What we will do is find out what is the nature of the additional analysis that's been done and see whether or not that might be appropriate for any samples that we're holding uh, because we, of course, could then if that science is seen to be um, effective now, we could then go back and look at anything that we're holding.
7: So you would have to have some sort of suspicions in a way, or would the samples indicate towards some sort of benefit for one particular type of athlete?
4: Well, that's right. So if this is due to an advance, for example, in... in, um in the testing of some anabolic steroids, then there wouldn't be much point in going back and testing, or there would be less point in going back and testing samples of, for example, endurance athletes. And the reverse would apply if this is a better test for EPO, for example, then the likelihood of catching weightlifters with it would be extremely low. So you just need to match up where the science has taken us and and how that relates to any particular samples and, and the athletes
0: that provided them.
1: Graham Steele speaking to Barry Guy. High Performance Sport New Zealand says a funding increase of $16 million over the next four years for elite sport is $24 million short of what's needed to keep New Zealand ahead of the game internationally. The government has announced an extra $4 million a year for the next four years for HPSNZ, with Sports Minister Jonathan Coleman warning it's inevitable that Olympic medal hauls will plateau or drop. HPSNZ is targeting 14 medals plus for August Rio Games and 16 plus in 2020 in Tokyo. HPSNZ receives $62 million in funding annually, but Chief Executive Alex Bauman says they'd hoped that would increase to $72
0: million. For Rio, yes, 14 plus. Um... You know i, I we're, we're already set for Rio to to be honest I, I think um, the investment is you know, is committed. Uh, what we'll do post Rio in in October and, and November is really um, have a fairly rigorous approach uh, it, it will mean that we'll still have to target uh, appropriately uh, maintain that rigor on on priorities and there's no doubt some some hard decisions will will still have to be made
3: but you would expect Rio may well be the peak of a middle haul in the, in the foreseeable future given the the latest funding and, and what you're saying i mean it would seem that tokyo y- you wouldn't be setting the same expectation
0: well i mean at this point in time you know we'll have to reassess that i think post post rio at this point in time you know we're we're looking at our goal for tokyo is 16 plus plus and um you know th- there's a lot of factors involved in terms of you know what retirements will will have Uh, we do have a lot of athletes in the system right now and, and we're, we're confident that we can maintain the momentum, but we'll have to reassess that, you know, we're hoping that, um, you know, we'll get that 14 plus, uh, maybe, maybe a little bit more. We're tracking pretty well, but as you know, I mean, that Olympic environment is pretty fierce and, um. You know, while you can project um, in advance, it it is kind of like an election poll uh, before. I mean, uh, when it matters most is actually that that election, and that's going to be the Olympics. And and there's a lot of factors involved in terms of pressure, uh, in terms of environment, et cetera, et cetera. But I think we're well-placed at this point in time. So, you know, I still think that um, we can maintain and, and, and perhaps... Uh, increase, but uh, we will reassess that post Rio.
3: So, what do you make of uh, Jonathan Coleman's comments then? That h- expectations should be that the medals will plateau or even drop back.
0: Well, I think at, at some point in time that will definitely be the case. Uh, you know, I'm always the, the the optimist and always strive to do to, to do better. But uh, you know, in the end, it, it is a bit of an arms race, and, and uh, you know, there's a lot of countries putting. uh, significant amounts of of resource into high performance. And we're very fortunate because there has been good political will, Um, Jonathan Coleman, uh, Murray McCulley before that, and uh, obviously the prime minister as well, very, very supportive and understands the importance of sport and and, uh, understands the importance of uh, doing well on on the world stage in terms of that inspirational component, uniting the nation and and role models as well. So we, we are extremely fortunate, there's no doubt about that.
3: Is that the case? Because Jonathan Coleman has also said that he's not convinced a- about the relationship between high-performance sport a- and the impact at the community level.
0: Well, you know, I think there's always that uh, interesting uh, discussion on, on in terms of what impact it has on participation levels. You know, I, I, there's anecdotal evidence that there are increases in, in participation, and coming from Canada, that, that was the case. Australia, when I was CEO of Queensland Swimming Post, Sydney, Uh, absolutely the the case as as well. But I don't think there's uh, empirical data that says, you know, across the board that's going to be the case. But, you know, I I do think we we have to make that connection, uh, understand where the minister is coming from in terms of high performance and and increased participation. And, um, you know, we should be using our role models to help further that as well.
3: So you're going to have to convince the minister that there is a correlation?
0: Well, I think it's whether it's High Performance Sport New Zealand or or Sport New Zealand that does that, I I do think we're going to have to provide some more evidence to ensure that there is a better correlation.
3: So what would it have taken, do you think, to keep the system progressing at its its current rate rather than the extra $4 million per annum? Um,
0: You know, when when we did the analysis, um, you know, we we felt that... um, you know, there's probably around that $10 million per annum that um, was required, and even that that, that was moderated based on, on some of the NSO uh, requests. So, um, you know, I think when you take a look at $16 million, it, it's a good outcome for us. Uh, absol- absolutely, $4 million uh, will, will make a difference, but there are still pressures, and, and um, you know, I, I think in the end, we're just going to have to prioritize and, and cut our cloth accordingly. So... Um, you know the government's been uh, certainly very good to us. Uh, in 2010, there was $20 million increase. Uh, you know, went from 38 uh, to 58, and, and that made a huge difference. Along with the structural changes, um, HPSNZ being being formed, there's no doubt the results that we have now have come from that increased investment. Because the correlation between results and, and uh, investment, um, you know, that that is very high. It sits around the 98, 99 percent.
1: Alex Bauman speaking to Stephen Hewson. And that's the show for this week. Feedback is welcome via our social media accounts, Twitter or Facebook, or our email, sport at radionz.co.nz. We'll be back next week with the next Extra Time Show. Until then, I'm Joe Porter.
6: Bye for now. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts?